Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today we are continuing our conversation on the different kinds of narcissism that you are most likely to encounter in high demand religion. Today's subset of narcissism is one I actually hadn't heard of until just a couple of months ago. And in fact, it's pretty new on the scene of narcissism. The first mention that I could find of it on the internet was a 2012 paper by Gebauer et al., which proposed this sort of agency or individual versus communal kind of narcissism. And it argued that there were two kinds of narcissism, those that are agentic, which means that they're all about themselves and they try to get their needs for validation and admiration and grandiosity and entitlement, all those things met by setting themselves up above other people in a very individualistic way. And then there were narcissists that met those same needs, those same self-serving needs of grandiosity, entitlement, admiration, validation. They got those met by doing communal things or things for other people or the community. Now, I will say that I would be so surprised if those of you from High Demand Religion have not encountered this kind of narcissism. I saw this kind of narcissism woven through pretty much every fabric of Mormonism. It was exemplified by leaders, by mothers, by choir directors, by just the individual members, your everyday members. It was inside of me. It still is inside of me a little bit. And becoming aware of this is actually helping me see some of these unhealthy patterns from where I grew up, how they inform my relationships with members of my family, as well as how they inform my identity, my work now, and maybe how I might be showing up with my own family. Now, like all of the episodes we've done up until this point, the last couple of episodes, you may be triggered as we are talking about communal narcissism. This may hit a little close to home, both because you may have parents or close family members that were communal narcissists, and this may bring up some grief. It may bring up some understanding. It may make you feel angry, and all of that is okay. Where you may find that you're really triggered, though, is recognizing some of these patterns in yourself. Remember, noticing these patterns We're going to have them. It makes sense. We were raised in high demand religion where these patterns were actually celebrated and encouraged. And it makes sense that we would have adopted these in order to have space in the community, in order to get our own needs for validation and self-worth met and to belong. Becoming aware of this does not mean that you're a bad person. 
it means there's some healing to do. That is it. If you get triggered, remember to take some time for self-care. And remember, you're not alone. I will freely admit to you some of these patterns are in me. Because I was raised in high-demand religion, this was my reality. This was my whole life. It's the whole lens I saw the world through for 37 years of my life. Of course, I picked up some unhealthy ways of meeting my needs when I was raised in a religion that not only prizes narcissism, but almost teaches narcissism as a way to get your needs met, to serve God, to do good in the world. So if you're right there with me, just notice it. Take some time to do self-care, deep breathe through it, get curious with it, and we're going to continue to learn so that we can heal. Now, in the last episode about self-righteous narcissism, I went from the viewpoint of how it's internalized in us, but today we're actually going to be talking about communal narcissism more from a point of observing it in others. So if last episode was a little difficult for you, it may be a little easier today because we're talking about it from the point of view of how it shows up in others. And it's simply because those were just the examples that came to mind most readily. So today might be a little bit easier for you. But notice your triggers. Triggers will feel like anger. They'll feel like frustration. They may feel like shame or like guilt. And just pause the podcast, take care of yourself, and come back whenever you're ready for a little bit more, okay? Today, I also wanted you to know I'm going to be using the term narcissist instead of saying people with narcissistic traits just simply for ease of vocabulary. But know that I'm talking about narcissism as a spectrum, When I say narcissist, I don't just mean clinical or malignant narcissists. I actually mean the whole spectrum. So you can see communal narcissism all the way from kind of a low-grade narcissistic place all the way up to pathology. So I'm just going to use the word narcissist, though, so I'm not having to say people with narcissistic traits and clarifying that throughout the entire podcast. All right, so communal narcissism. This is actually a relatively new subset of narcissism, and it is super difficult to identify. And the reason it's so difficult to identify is agentic or like the self-centered, really overt, grandiose narcissist typically is easy to spot. They're arrogant. They brag a lot. They put themselves above others. You You can spot them. It's all about them. But communal narcissists they get their supply from serving others. So they use communal means to meet their grandiose self-related needs. They have the same needs that agentic narcissists have. That doesn't go away, but they appear to be almost saintly or self-sacrificing on the exterior. They mask their desire to control as a desire to help, They get their validation from doing stuff for other people, like, you know, community projects, uh, helping animals, saving the earth, or in the case of religion, like serving God. They want to be seen as the most loving, caring, compassionate, or self-sacrificing person, and they present themselves as someone who can listen and connect. So on the outside, these people look amazing. 
they are constantly giving to whatever cause it is that they're passionate about. In fact, they may almost seem obsessed with the cause, whether that's a religious cause or a charity cause, they are completely devoted to it. And these narcissistic traits are especially difficult to identify because the narcissism is typically covert. It's present in the beliefs and thoughts going on inside of the person, but not necessarily immediately identifiable in their behavior. And because it is covert, it's harder to discern. Like we don't have access to other people's thoughts or beliefs. And so we have to kind of just discern them from their outward language and their behavior. Nonprofits and helping professions have a tendency to attract these people in droves. In fact, there have been studies that have been done that found that preachers have a 400% chance of being narcissists versus the regular population. So you are 400 times more likely to find a narcissist in a religious leadership position than you would just in the regular population. And it's partly because of this communal narcissism. You get to look like a saint. You get to look like an amazing person. But it's also because religion sort of provides the shelter for abuse. We just assume that people who are religious are automatically good people, so it's easier to mask there. It also provides people with a whole bunch of power and authority And for the communal narcissist, they can offset those grandiose parts of narcissism and actually blame them on God. And there's so much I want to talk about there, but it is too long for this podcast. They can make God look like the narcissist, and they're just the humble servant. So they can almost look like they're codependent with God, that they're just there to serve and provide supply to God, when in actuality, they might be doing that, but in actuality, they're the ones that are getting all of the attention and the praise and the power and authority for their service. Now, when you're around these people, things might feel off, but it's hard to pinpoint exactly why you're so turned off by a communal narcissist behavior because they're doing so much good. So you're going to have this sort of conflict going on inside of your head. There's going to be some cognitive dissonance because there's one part of you that's looking and saying, oh my gosh, they do so much good. Look how committed they are. Look how righteous they are. But another part of you is like, yeah, but something doesn't feel right here. I feel less than around this person or like I'm not important or I feel like I'm being used. You might feel a lot of these things and it might not make sense to you because on the outside, it looks like this person loves and cares about everyone, but on the backside, maybe when no one's watching, they're really snippy with you. They blame you for everything that goes wrong. You feel neglected or like you're just not even there, or you may feel like you're criticized or judged a lot, but it comes from this place of, I care about you and I want to help you and I want to make sure you're your best self but it feels really shaming or it feels really critical or judgmental. And so it can be really confusing. It becomes even harder because these narcissists can actually fake genuine care and concern. So they can look like they're really empathic. They might ask you questions about yourself and actually sit and listen, but they might use that information later as sort of ammunition against you. or 
they turn on their empathy for a short time, say like when cameras are on or when other people are listening or watching, but it can only stay on for a short amount of time. So they can pretend to be very empathic people, but again, you start getting that double personality where they might be empathic where others are watching or where cameras are on or microphones are on, but then behind closed doors, they might be a completely different person or when you're alone, they might be a completely different person. Now, this kind of narcissist is also the hardest to call out on their behavior because they often have a big group of supporters who think that they are saints. There might be a lot of hero worship going on for this kind of narcissist where people just think that they are the most amazing thing since sliced bread. And if you talk about concerns about their behavior or their motives or how they treat you when no one else is around, people in the community often don't believe you. Or they might even turn on you and tell you that you're the problem, that you're jealous or projecting your own insecurities onto them, or that you're just a rebellious kid, or that you just want to sin, or that you're influenced by Satan, or something like that. If this sounds like something that you've endured, we're going to really dig into understanding the communal narcissist today, what that looks like in high-demand religion, what that behavior might be like so that you can start to identify it. And the more aware you are of what these behaviors are, the less crazy you're going to feel and the more able you're going to be to listen to your gut instincts and to create safe spaces for yourself. Or if you recognize these things in yourself, that gives you the ability to begin to work through those and to create healthier patterns of behavior in your life that are going to allow you to connect more deeply with those around you and create the relationships and the change in the world that you actually want to make. I believe that communal narcissists actually do want to make a change. They do care, but because their self-wounds are so big, that comes first. So it becomes about them first and helping others second. And I think most of us, when we do good in the world, we want to be doing good because we want the world to be a better place. We want to save the environment. We want to save the whales. We want people to have enough food to eat. We want to find a way to have world peace, whatever it is that we're working on. So identifying where communal narcissism might be going on inside of us allows us to step out of the way of the good things we're wanting to do in the world so that we can actually make it about the cause and less about ourselves. Now, before we go any further in this episode, I have a super, super quick ask of you. If you feel like this podcast is helping you understand and accept yourself better, and if you feel like these resources should be amplified so that more people have access to them as they deconstruct high-demand religion and family trauma, pause the podcast and head over to emancipateyourmind.org and make a $10 donation. Or keep listening, and I'm going to walk you through it, okay? Go to emancipateyourmind.org, and the donation area is on the right-hand side. It's at the top of the page under the words, support the podcast and give a gift. Click that monthly donation button if you'd like to automatically fund the research and broadcast each month so we can make sure that everyone that is healing from religious trauma or specifically in this case, religious narcissistic abuse has access to the tools and support they need to thrive. 
We need community. We need to know we're not alone as we're healing. And these resources can be the difference between healing quickly with support and with confidence and feeling lonely and lost. So let's answer the first question most people have. What is the difference between someone who is altruistic, someone who wants to do good in the world, and a communal narcissist? So while many of us have altruistic parts of ourselves and we enjoy doing good in the world simply for the joy of doing the good, like seeing things get better, and even though many of us do enjoy a good thank you and we enjoy recognition, the biggest difference between an altruistic person and a communal narcissist is that the primary reason a communal narcissist will do good things is to get credit for doing it and to seem like a superior person. So if you're worried, am I a communal narcissist? Stop right now and listen to what's going on inside of you. When I go work at the animal shelter, am I doing it primarily so people will see what a good person I am? Or am I doing it because I really care about cats and dogs having a good home? When I serve at church, is it primarily so people will see how righteous I am or how service-oriented I am? Or is it primarily because I believe deeply in these things and I want to bless other people's lives and help them have a relationship with themselves and with a deity? What's at the base of our service? We can even ask ourselves these questions about our parenting or about our friendships. At the base of my relationship with my kids, am I doing the things I do for them because I love them and want them to have an amazing life and I want them to have the best foundation possible? Or is it primarily so that I will get love and admiration, and so that people will know what a good person I am? Am I buying my kids allegiance with the service I do for them? Am I doing for them now so that they will serve me later? These are questions to ask ourselves. To decide, am I closer on the spectrum towards altruism, or am I closer on the spectrum towards communal narcissism? Because again, Almost all things are on a spectrum. Where am I at? You may notice a couple of communal narcissistic traits, but are primarily altruistic. Get curious with the narcissistic traits. Figure out if there is a healthier way for you to meet your needs. Now, a communal narcissist, if you need a couple of extra clues, they're only going to do good things when people can see or when photography or videography is most likely. So if eyes are on them, they're more likely to do the service. And if no one's watching, they're less likely to do the service. So these are the people that want the really prominent roles in a service project. They want to be the director of the charity gala. They want to be the PR person for the cleanup effort at the hurricane. They're there for the photo event, but they're not there to get their hands dirty. 
These might be the people who put a huge chunk of change, several wads of dollar bills, in the collection plate at church when there's lots of people around. But if they're in a seat with not very many people around, they might keep it to themselves and donate nothing or a few cents. Or they might be the person that bids on a item at an auction for charity so that people can see how wealthy they are, but also how much they care about the cause. So you see people showing up in ways that are very ostentatious, but if there aren't very many eyes on them, they won't show up. Another indicator you might be dealing with a communal narcissist is they might only do good things when they're likely to be praised or awarded. So if there's an award for doing the service, like parent of the year or teacher of the year, or if there's some sort of doctor award or firefighter award, they're going to show up even extra. Employee of the month, they'll show up even extra. But if there's very little likelihood that they'll be awarded or recognized for their service or effort, they're less likely to show up. And then, of course, splitting is a huge indicator that you're dealing with a communal narcissist. Because what will happen, splitting is where you have two different personalities. Splitting is where you have a public persona. And for a communal narcissist, this is a highly empathic, kind, compassionate, service-oriented individual. They're trustworthy. They listen. They're deeply interested in people. But this is a public persona. And we know it's a public persona because on the back end with volunteers that work with them, with other staff members, with their employees, or with their own spouses, kids, and friends, they have a completely different persona. They might be irritable, surly, or even distant with those that work with them or with their family at home if they don't get enough praise, attention, or recognition, or if their event wasn't as successful as they had hoped. They may also judge the very people or causes they serve when they're in private. So in public, they may seem very empathic about the people they're helping, but then in private may judge harshly the people that need the help. So if you see somebody that seems very compassionate and kind out in public, but has a completely different personality or is abusive to their family at home or their employees say that they're really cruel, you're likely dealing with a communal narcissist because that splitting is a big indicator. I want to make it clear that communal narcissists have the same basic traits as all other narcissists. So a sense of grandiosity or a feeling of being superior to others, a sense of entitlement because of that superiority. They have a need for constant validation and admiration and they do have a lack of empathy, the ability to non-judgmentally feel with other people. They also display fragility and emotional immaturity in the face of failure, conflict, or feedback that is anything other than gushing admiration or appreciation. And we're going to talk about how these traits show up specifically with a communal narcissist. So first, grandiosity. They believe themselves to be the most helpful, caring, empathic, service-oriented, spiritual, or self-sacrificing friend or parent out there. 
many view themselves as almost a superhero or a savior, here to save humanity, their spouses, their friends, or the congregation from themselves. And this might sound like a politician who's promising to solve a social or ecological problem single-handedly during their term in office when we've been working on that particular problem for decades without a complete solution. So believing they are the person that's going to change it all. It might also sound like believing they're called to share the gospel with the world and thus save the souls of all of these people from burning in hell. Another way this might show up is even believing that the congregation or missionary work would collapse without their contributions and service. Or if you guys have seen the Book of Mormon musical, which I love, the grandiosity for a communal narcissist can sound like Elder Price's song, You and Me, in the Book of Mormon musical. Do you guys know which one I'm talking about? He and Elder Cunningham are singing. They're talking about the work they're going to do in the missionary field, and they're looking forward to it. And Elder Price is like the perfect example of a grandiose communal narcissist. He says, something incredible. I'll do something incredible. I want to be the Mormon that changed all of mankind. Something that I've foreseen. Now that I'm 19, I'll do something incredible that blows God's freaking mind. And then he says, as long as we stick together. And Elder Cunningham says, and I stay out of your way. He goes on to say, we'll change the world forever and make tomorrow a latter day. I mean, do you hear the grandiosity? It's. I'm going to do something incredible that is so amazing. It's going to blow God's freaking mind. And he's saying, like, I'm going to do this alone. Like, you can come along with me, Elder Cunningham, but it's going to be me. In fact, throughout the song, he says, you and me, but mostly me, are going to change the world forever. That is a perfect example of overt, grandiose communal narcissism. And thanks for listening to my singing. That was actually really fun for me. I miss singing at church. That's something that I need to find a replacement for and I have not found a good replacement for. All right, so entitlement. For a communal narcissist, entitlement shows up as believing that because you are so crucial to the work or because you do so much good for others that you deserve special treatment or more resources than most. And this might look like believing you're entitled to obedience because you sacrificed so much for your kids. You gave up so much to give them a good childhood so they owe you the life that you've chosen for them. Some of you might be seeing this in your parents because you've made a different choice. If your parents are communal narcissists, what might come up for them is I served so hard. I mommed so hard, and so therefore you owe me a life of obedience to the church. You owe me this membership. You owe me looking like a good mom at church, like a faithful mom, because I gave up all of these things. And this happens a lot for moms, you guys, because in high-demand religion, moms believe they have so few choices. Their choices are to get married to have kids, and if they decide to have a career, it has to work around the children. 
This can leave mothers feeling so helpless and like they really don't have a lot of choices. They can feel really resentful. They can feel very underappreciated and it can come out as communal narcissism. It really, really can. There's a reason that we hear a lot about Karens and a lot of those Karens are mothers that felt coerced into motherhood. And so they decided they were going to get their validation by raising the best damn kids on the planet so that everyone would know what a good mom they were. And when we leave the church, it really pushes at that internal shame and insecurity that the narcissism was meant to cover. And remember, just because we have compassion for why someone might be acting like they are, it does not excuse abuse. It does not excuse harm. So it is absolutely okay to recognize and hold people accountable for harm, even when we understand where it comes from. So this next example is actually from my real life back in my early 20s. I had a church leader demand that I take his daughter's senior photos back when I was a photographer. He wanted me to take these photos for free because he gave so much time and service to the church community. In fact, he held my temple covenants over me. And he said, if you remember when you went to the temple, you covenanted to share all of your time and talents and everything the Lord had blessed you with, with with the church. And he said, because I went to the temple, I owed him free senior photos because he was a part of the church. And I acquiesced because I didn't know much about narcissism and I was still very codependent and people pleasing and I wanted everyone to like me and I did not want to be a mean girl in any way, shape, or form. I didn't want to be selfish. And so I self-sacrificed like crazy as a way to get my needs met. I wanted everyone to like think I was just so nice. So a little bit of communal narcissism there in me as I acquiesced to his sense of entitlement. A little codependency coming up for me. Another way this might show up is insisting on everyone stay seated until you, as the church leader or in Mormonism, the general authority, stand out of respect for the mantle of God that you carry and out of reverence for your work in service of the Lord. So if you have people that in the church want you to almost hero worship them and go over the top to show signs of respect, for their role as the preacher or as an apostle or a prophet or a rabbi or a general authority, this is some of that entitlement that comes with communal narcissism. And then those of you who come from an LDS background, you saw this clearly when the new prophet, Russell Nelson, had a huge televised celebration for his 95th birthday And he used the church's biggest buildings, their security and broadcasting services, the church's most famous performers, and invited distinguished guests to share personal tributes about him and insights into his life. All of the talks were about how he was the best dad, the best heart surgeon, the best prophet, the best servant of God. Like That is entitlement and grandiosity kind of all rolled into one. All right, the next trait that communal narcissists have, that all narcissists have, is a need for constant validation and admiration. And this shows up for communal narcissists in believing that others owe you constant thanks 
and almost hero worship for the good that you do in the world. Some of the things that came up for me when I was thinking about the constant admiration was the well done, thou good and faithful servant, believing like if I serve well enough, then at the end, the greatest of all, God the Almighty is going to say to me, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Also, whenever we got higher callings or responsibilities, we took that as evidence that we were doing a good job and that we were trusted by God in the community. There's a lot of that attention-grabbing need for validation that comes with the roles that we have at church and who's seen as better than whom. What is the hierarchy there? And are we seen as the upper crust? Giving talks or sermons, bearing testimony, or teaching lessons. If we're a communal narcissist, what we're looking for are the good jobs and the your talk was so amazing or I loved your lesson at the end to prove that you are a really amazing teacher, speaker, or servant of God. Another indicator might be if you're only willing to serve in high-profile positions or roles or when people would be able to see you well. So if you turn down roles that are less visible, or if you accept the roles that are less visible and do them in a way that calls attention to you so that you'll be called to something higher or given a responsibility that's more visible later. All right, the next one is lack of empathy or compassion for others. So a communal narcissist might become angry or judgmental when someone isn't as devoted to their cause as they are. Believing people are selfish, weak, or sinful if they aren't as involved. And there was actually a beautiful example of this. And I say beautiful, but I mean awful. When here recently, just this past week, an apostle in the LDS church, and I'm sorry to those of you who are listening who are coming from other denominations and other faiths. I just know Mormonism inside and outside, and I hear the most information from them. So if you're coming from a different religious background and something like this happens, send me the article. I will read it. I love being informed. I just get a lot more articles from people who are ex-Mormon than I do from people who are ex-Christian, and I'm not as familiar with the bigwigs in Christianity. I mean, I know Jerry Falwell and you know the Graham family and all of that. So. Um, The 700 Club, I grew up listening to that on my grandfather's TV. I'm aware of some of the really big players, but not any since my childhood, really. So feel free to send me articles, and I will read them, and it's more likely that I'll be talking about some of those. But a couple of days ago, somebody sent me a recording of an apostle in the LDS church talking to missionaries out in the field. And he was talking to ones he thought might be thinking of returning home early. And he said that missionaries who return early are the most pitiable in the world. Do you feel the shame language there already? So he goes on to use threatening, fear, and shame-based language that shows his lack of empathy and understanding for the valid reasons people might want to leave early and asserts his desire to control others. He says, I have lived on and off in my general authority life. I have come in contact around the world with missionaries who did not see their mission through. 
I'm not talking about medical releases or emergencies or tragedies. I'm talking about someone who just said, I don't like doing this. It's too hard. And I'm going home to let my mother take care of me. We're going to stop right there. That's just the first paragraph. First of all, we see some of this communal narcissism in he sets himself up as a superior. In my general authority life, there are only 15 general authorities at the level he's at in the LDS church. So he sets himself up as more righteous, more knowledgeable, more called of God than any of these missionaries. And basically he's saying, I've lived more and I've seen more and I know more. So therefore I know more, not just for my life, but for yours as well. He then goes on to use shame language saying, I don't like doing this. It's too hard. So people who leave are weak. There's no empathy there. There's no curiosity about valid reasons people might leave. And I want my mother to take care of me. This is almost like calling these missionaries mama's boys or mama's girls. We're invoking this sort of babyish, childlike, infantilized visual in our head that these missionaries are not men. They can't cut it. They're weak. They want to go home and let their mommies take care of them. And then add on top of that, there's people laughing, this like polite laughter underneath this clip, and it's really disturbing. He goes on to say, now that's strong language. That's really strong language. But I told you before, my mission means everything to me. Do you hear the communal narcissism? I am completely devoted to this cause. I can't see any reason why people wouldn't be as committed as me. And then he begins to use threatening and abusive language. Even with the laugh track, this feels very much like someone threatening personal assault on a date, but in like a joking way. And you kind of laugh nervously and you're not really sure if they're serious or not. Either way, it is abusive language. He says, I would wrestle you to the floor. I would. I'd pull the curtains down. I'd get chains. I don't know. Is there something around here that we can tie people with? I don't see anything to tie people with. I'd rip the cords off the television camera to keep you here. So this sort of threatening, abusive idea of being bound and chained against your will. You don't know what's best for you. I know what's best for you. I'm trying to save you because I know better than you, because I'm a general authority. This is communal narcissism in a very toxic way. He then goes on to say, not for our sake. You think one little missionary in 58,000, you know, that isn't going to bring the church to its knees. So right here is another narcissistic trait. He has aggrandized himself. I'm a general authority. You're a lowly missionary, one in 58,000. You're so insignificant that if you decide to leave the church, it won't bring the church to its knees. I'm doing this, though, because I care about you and I don't want you to ruin your life. He goes on to say, but it's going to ruin your life. That's fear. If you don't do the best thing you've ever had a chance to do, the best thing you've ever had a chance to do, according to me, because I care so much about this cause. Like he said, my mission means everything to me. 
So he says, but it's going to ruin your life if you don't do the best thing you've ever had a chance to do, however hard it is and however hard it yet may be. So he says, there is nothing, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how hard it might get in the future, there is nothing that justifies you leaving this cause that I care so deeply about and that makes me look good. Like if you stay, if I'm able to convince you to stay, it makes me look good as a general authority. It serves me. And I'm going to use coercive, controlling, manipulating, shame-based, and fear-based language to get you to do what I want you to do because my authority is greater than your own personal authority. This is communal narcissism in a very pathological way. No matter how many smiles are on this person's face, no matter how many tears come out in his voice, this is abusive, controlling, and manipulative language that comes from a place of communal narcissism. This is an overt display of covert beliefs and thoughts that this LDS general authority has. He is invalidating the personhood of these missionaries, and he's saying that their role is to supply the church with loyal service no matter how emotionally or mentally damaging it is, and that there is no valid reason to do otherwise. This is literally spoken like a malignant narcissist. Whether that malignant narcissist is the God that's being presented that requires this of the missionaries, the church as an organization, or this general authority, this is a malignant message. Now, what do we do when our parent or spouse is a communal narcissist? It can be so hard to get support when your parent or spouse is a communal narcissist because everyone views them as a saint. Perhaps your mother was the perfectly attentive hostess who would make someone dinner or watch their kids last minute, always looks like the most involved mom out in public, ran all the fundraisers for your activities, kept a perfect house, and even managed to sing in the church choir. She may even act super interested in your friends' lives and remember all their upcoming events and who they're dating. She's the mom all your friends wish they had because she seems so involved and loving when they see her, and she's the mom that has a fan club of people who thinks that she's superwoman. But at home, she might be neglectful or forgetful of your needs. She may take her frustration or insecurity out on you when her charity gala is flawed or fails altogether. She may be cold toward you when Carol gets the award for Parent of the Year at the PTA ceremony, as if you personally ruined her opportunity to shine. She may constantly criticize you and your appearance, your behavior, your language, your grades, your career choices, your friends, or even how you parent your kids because of how it makes her look in public, how it chips away at her carefully and perfectly curated persona outside of the home. Communal narcissists can also become mentally and emotionally abusive when they feel someone is outshining them and they're no longer relevant. They're okay with you being good at something as long as your goodness doesn't overshadow theirs. Like the You and Me song in the Book of Mormon musical, they want to change the world with you as long as you remain less impressive than they are. The song says, you and me, but mostly me, are going to change the world forever because I can do most anything. And then Elder Cunningham says, and I can stand next to you and watch. 
He says, every hero needs a sidekick. Every captain needs a mate. Every dinner needs a side dish on a slightly smaller plate. As long as your plate stays slightly smaller and your contribution less shiny, they're happy to watch you shine slightly less than they do at the cause. Or another way for them to deal with your success is to take credit for your rise to stardom. They may say they paved the way for you or that they taught you everything they know, that you're a chip off the old block, or you're as amazing as you are because of the parents that you had. When you tell someone that you feel unloved, judged, or dismissed by a communal narcissist, it's likely no one will believe you. They'll think you're acting like a brat or being entitled. They'll say you expect too much or that you're wanting perfection from your parent or spouse when really what you want is a real connection. You want something that's not superficial. This can deeply hurt and it can leave you feeling lonely and unseen. It can leave you feeling like you're crazy. Everybody else thinks my parent is amazing. What's wrong with me? Everyone else thinks my spouse is incredible. What's wrong with me? And it can lead to this place of deep self-doubt, this place of deep insecurity, which may lead to your own narcissistic tendencies because your needs for self-validation, your needs to be seen and loved and to belong, those are valid. We all have those needs. Now, I want to talk quickly before we close about how to protect ourselves from narcissism of all types. The first thing we can do is to connect with our gut instincts. Being able to hear and trust our own inner guidance system is going to be one of the first steps to protecting ourselves. People who are in touch with our own emotions and are able to sit with and get curious with what those emotions mean for us are less easily manipulated and controlled. Narcissists don't like people who can hear their own inner voice. They want people that they can speak to as the authority. They want to be the authority in your life. Because when they are the authority in your life, they can control the outcomes and get the supply that they need. If you need help connecting with your gut instincts, please check out the Emancipate Yourself app. It's on Google and Apple. I have a course that literally walks you through reconnecting with your gut, reconnecting with that inner guidance system. And then you can build on that. There's another course that takes you through recovering your identity after you've reconnected with your inner knowing. People are finding so much success with this program and there is weekly coaching involved. It is part of the package. When you sign up for the app, you're eligible to come to the weekly live call and get your questions answered face-to-face. I'm right there. And you're also going to have access to a community that will support you. This is so important when you're dealing with communal narcissism or self-righteous narcissism. When people are not likely to believe you about the abuse you went through, having a community that doesn't know the narcissist in your life can really help you feel less crazy and allow you to start to heal. The second thing is awareness. When something seems off or is rubbing you the wrong way about someone, sit with the feeling until you clearly understand what feels wrong. See if you can label the behavior or belief that feels off for you. 
Instead of brushing it off when something feels wrong to you, treat it as if it's valid. Something feels off here. What is it? Why are red flags coming up for me? Why do I feel uncomfortable? Why do I feel triggered? What's going on? Sit with it for as long as you need to until you understand. The third thing, trust yourself. If something feels off, that is valid. No one else has to agree with you. If someone's behavior feels icky, listen to that feeling and figure out what you need to feel safe. The fourth thing, set boundaries. What is okay with you and what isn't okay with you? Do you know? Get clear with yourself about what you can tolerate or want or will allow, what feels safe, and what is not okay. Communicate boundaries clearly and follow through to protect yourself when boundaries aren't respected. If you need help with boundaries, there is a whole episode on setting boundaries with narcissists. Highly recommend that you go listen to that. It's going to take you through step-by-step how you set boundaries especially with difficult people who will push back against your boundaries. And narcissists are those kind of people. They don't like boundaries. They will push back on them. Go listen to that episode if you need help with figuring out what your boundaries are and how you communicate them and how you hold those boundaries, which is so important. The next step is prepare for the backlash. Because people with narcissism expect the world to revolve around them, they will not react well to being told no, confronting boundaries, or having the focus taken off of them. Expect narcissists to respond to your boundaries with demands of their own, guilt trips, or to use shame-based approaches to make you feel unreasonable or dramatic. Expect that up front. Know what you're going to do to care for yourself when that happens. Number six, remember it is not your fault. When people can't have healthy conflict conversations, won't admit mistakes, won't take responsibility for the harm they cause, and aren't willing to engage in resolution conversations that are a win-win for everyone involved, it's not your fault. Don't take responsibility for things that aren't your fault. Taking blame for everything actually makes the behavior worse in the future. So only take responsibility for your part. It's okay to be accountable for your part, but it's not okay to be accountable for your part and their part. And if you're not sure what you want to be accountable for, don't say anything. Give yourself a phrase that you can say, like, I need to think about this, I'll get back to you, and get out of there, whether it's hanging up the phone or leaving so that you can sit with yourself and hear your own inner voice. You're going to have to give yourself a lot of space at the beginning to hear your own inner voice. This is a skill that we practice and it's not going to come easily at the very first, especially if you've been in codependent relationships with narcissists your entire life. And if you've been in high demand religion, the chances that you've been in codependent relationships with either narcissistic people or a narcissistic system is highly likely. You might not know how to hear your own voice. This is going to be something that you're going to have to practice, which means you might have to pause conversations and say, you know what? I'm not ready to talk about this yet. I need to sit and listen to myself so that I can accurately communicate with you. And you are allowed to take a break as often as you need to. If you're only able to come back and have another minute or two of conversation before you're like, okay, I have more things to sit with. You're allowed to do that as many times as you need to 
so that you can communicate accurately and care for your emotional needs. And make sure that you're not taking the blame for things that are not yours to take the blame for. And then last is self-care. Do what you need to do to regulate your nervous system and return to a sense of rest, calm, and digestion. Conflict with narcissists is going to put you in fight or flight or freeze or fawn. Recognize that that could happen and have a plan to care for yourself and bring yourself back to a sense of calm to release the trauma of the conversation and to help you feel safe again. Now, my ask for today is simply this. I want you to get curious this week about what your gut sounds like. How do you know when your inner guidance is speaking to you? I want you to listen this week and see if you can hear it or feel it and go and share what it sounds like or feels like on the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group. Because over the past 10 years, as I've listened to more people share what their inner wisdom sounds like and how they hear it, it's given me more access to my own. I thought mine was just emotional, but I actually get pictures in my head that give me messages. Sometimes I'll have thoughts. I have dreams occasionally. Sometimes I will have wisdom that comes up as a burst of inspiration when I'm writing. But I want to know, how do you hear your inner guidance? What physiological things do you feel in your body when it's speaking to you? How do your emotions communicate with you? How do you hear your subconscious thoughts? What clues you in that your inner guidance is speaking to you? And if you don't know, just get curious this week. Pay attention to what might come up for you and allow yourself to explore that. All right. I can't wait to see what you're going to share. And I will talk to you more next Sunday.